following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw or our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. I want to go straight to this passage in John chapter 5. And uh, while you're turning there, uh, yesterday Julian got this email uh, which none of us, neither of us know who it's from. This random email from someone called Talkie. Okay? If your name is Talkie and you're here this morning, this is your lucky day. I want to read you this email because it relates directly to what we're about to talk about, Talkie. Right, here it goes. Hi. My, and, and here's the quote My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It is 100% clear from this that Jesus has a God. My question if Jesus the man is God, and if Jesus, the man, has a God, how can God and his God be the one God? Thanks. Talky. Well, talky. Let's have a talky about that. <laughs> because that's a great question. And Jesus himself dives in. Now, this isn't the passage where Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? But he explains here a lot of stuff that has a direct bearing on that question and comes out of the creed. You might hear some of some echoes of, of uh, statements we just read in the Nicene Creed as well. Here we go, John chapter 5, we'll pick it up in verse 16. So, because Jesus was doing these things on the Sabbath, the Jewish leaders began to persecute him. In his defense, Jesus said to them, My father is always at his work to this very day, and I too am working. For this reason, they tried all the more to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father making himself equal with God. Jesus gave them this answer. Very truly I tell you, the son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his father doing, because whatever the father does, the son also does. For the father loves the son and shows him all he does. Yes, and he will show him even greater works than these, so that you will be amazed. For just as the father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the son gives life to whom he is pleased to give it. Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son, just as they honor the Father. Whoever does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Very truly, I tell you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and will not be judged, but is crossed over from death to life. Very truly, I tell you, a time is coming and has now come when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For as the Father has life in himself, so he has granted the Son also to have life in himself. And he has given him authority to judge, because he is the Son of Man. Do not be amazed at this, for a time is coming when all who are in their graves will hear his voice and come out. Those who have done what is good will rise to live, and those who have done what is evil will rise to be condemned. By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. So this is admittedly, uh, maybe on the surface of it, not one of the more exciting passages in the Gospel of John. I mean, we tend to like the passages where Jesus performs miracles. We like the passages where Jesus does stuff. We like the passages where Jesus tells stories. We, at least the passages where Jesus has kind of a back and forth conversation with someone, but he doesn't do any of that here. This is more like a sermon of Jesus. And John has several of these through his Gospel. It's a sustained discourse of Jesus' teaching where he gives us an extended section of teaching on one subject. And so for that reason, it's kind of easy to maybe gloss over this passage a little bit 
and not give it a lot of attention on our way to some of the more exciting stuff in the Gospel of John. But what Jesus is doing here is quite extraordinary. He is drawing us into the inner life of God. Jesus is drawing us into this mysterious relationship that's going on all the time between the Father and the Son. And he's giving us one of the clearest glimpses of what that relationship within the life of God himself, what that relationship looks like and how it works. And the clearer that we see that relationship between the Father and the Son, the more clearly we're going to see the identity of Jesus and who Jesus is. And the more clearly we see the identity of Jesus, the more we're able to be shaped by that identity as followers of Jesus. So ultimately, we see ourselves in this sermon because we are those who follow Jesus and have life in Him, in the Son. But admittedly, this is a bit heavy going. It's, it's a bit confusing. There's parts of this that sound a little bit contradictory. Jesus seems to say one thing and then and sort of go off on another tangent. So I thought we would approach this a little bit differently this morning. I thought I'd do something a little bit different. And I want to introduce you today to a couple of guys, a couple of heretics. All right, we're going to meet the heretics this morning. And I, I, I can say that, I can say legitimately that they are heretics because it's not just me saying it. They, their views have been rejected as heresy by the church at the same council that came up with that creed that we just read, the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. Rejected the teaching of these two guys as heresy, as being outside of biblical teaching, as being incompatible with the scriptures and therefore outside of Christian theology. So what I want to do or try to do is look at where these guys went wrong because the views that were rejected by heresy are views about Jesus. Things that they said and thought about who Jesus was, partly based on this passage. I want to look at where they went wrong and then work from there to what Jesus says about himself so that hopefully by lining up what is not true, we, we can see more clearly the truth of what Jesus says. Now this is a bit of an experiment. This could fail. And we could all be a lot more confused in 30 minutes than we are now. Right? But I'm just going to give it a shot. We're just going to dive in and see what happens here. So I've called this message, Meet the Heretics. I was going to call it, Who Wants to Be a Heretic? But I thought that didn't quite have the same ring to it. Uh, but let me just say, actually, before we dive into this, let me just say something about heresy itself. Because I do think that the word heretic and associated words like false teacher, false prophet, they get thrown around a bit too loosely today. Do you think so? That, that, that some Christians like to slap those words on or titles on anyone who doesn't agree with them. You know, so if you think a little bit differently to me on some area or issue of theology, false teacher, false prophet, you're a heretic. You know? And not only is that harmful to the body of Christ, it's actually very ignorant of what heresy is. It just betrays an, heresy, uh, an, uh, an under, misunderstanding of what heresy has been in the history of the church. So hopefully by looking at a couple of real-life heretics, we might just be a bit more careful in the way that we use that word heresy and heretic in our lives. So, okay, you ready? We'll dive in. Heretic number one. Come on down. Uh, here he is, this guy here, Sibelius. Sibelius probably didn't think of himself, well, he definitely didn't think of himself as a heretic. He lived in the 3rd and 4th century, and uh, he was largely spent a lot of his career in Rome. Now, Sibelius really focused on the similarity between Jesus and God, or Jesus the Son and God the Father. And he really emphasized the sameness and the, and, and, and the equality of Jesus 
and God the Father and saw them as being pretty much the same thing or the same person. So he focused on passages like in John 5. Have a look at verse 19 where Jesus says, The Son can do nothing by himself. He can only do what he sees his Father doing because whatever the Father does, the Son does. So Sibelius looked at passages like this and he saw that wherever Jesus is working, God the Father is working. And wherever God the Father is working, Jesus is working. They're always all involved in whatever the other one is doing. And so Sibelius concluded that basically the Son and the Father are just different names for the same person. Just different titles, if you like. They're just different letterboxes for the same address. Jesus the Son, God the Father, it's just the same person. And Sibelius thought this about all three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The best way to think about his view is that he believed Father and Son and Holy Spirit were just three different masks that God wore. So for a time, God wore the Father mask. And then he got a bit sick of wearing that mask, so he put on the Son mask. And he revealed himself to the world as the Son. And then he got a bit tired of that, and so he put on the Spirit mask. And he revealed himself to the world as the Spirit. But at the end of the day, behind the masks, it's just one person. It's just this one person called God who just chooses to wear a different mask at different times for different purposes. Now, you might think that sounds quite plausible. You might quite like that view and you think, yeah, that's, that makes sense. I can see that. The different masks, same person. I'm, I'm with Sibelius. And if that's you, congratulations, you're a heretic. <laughs> that, I just really wanted to say that. I don't, I, I don't mean to be unkind. I'm sure, I'm sure you're not a heretic. And even if you are, we love you. But Sibelius' views were rejected by the church at the Council of Nicaea, and for good reason. Because the problem with his view is that it really doesn't line up with a lot of the rest of Scripture. It does make some sense of these statements where Jesus and the Father seem to be the same or doing the same thing. But look just a little bit further down in verse 22. The great thing about this passage is it gives you both views of who Jesus is. Down, further down in verse 22, so Jesus says, Moreover, the Father judges no one, but has entrusted all judgment to the Son, that all may honor the Son just as they honor the Father. So that doesn't really sound like just two different names for the same person, does it? Here you've got the Father entrusting judgment to Jesus. So, so God the Father has specifically decided that when Jesus returns, he's not going to do the judging. But he has entrusted judgment to Jesus, and Jesus will judge us one day, all of us, in place of the Father. So it's hard to square that with the idea that, well, Father and Son are just different names for the same person. No, no, there's distinct identities here. There's different roles. There's different personas here. One does one thing, another does this. This person, the Father, entrusts judgment to this person, the Son. And that's why Sibelius' view was ultimately rejected, because he really didn't allow for the difference within the being of God. Yes, Jesus and God are, in a sense, the same being, but they are distinct persons. The Father and the Son and the Spirit have distinct identities. They have distinct, distinct personalities, distinct roles in the story of God. Father, Son, and Spirit are three different and distinct persons all contained within the one being of God. Welcome to the doctrine of the Trinity. This is what the Trinity is. Three persons in one being. Now, Sibelius would say, no, no, one being, one person. But Christian orthodoxy says one being, three distinct persons. So the Father, Son, and Spirit can act in different ways, even though they're all in some way involved in what the other is doing. Now, if that all just sounds like weird, abstract theology that just has no relevance to life, let me tell you the story. 
A few years ago, there was a guy in this church, he doesn't go to this church anymore, uh, who wanted to be baptized. And so he came and talked to me about it, and he said, I want to be baptized, but I only want to be baptized in the name of Jesus. He said, I don't want to be baptized in the name of the Father or the name of the Spirit. I just want to be baptized in Jesus' name. So I thought, okay, let's put the brakes on here. <laughs> Slow down, let's have a conversation. So we sat down, and as we talked, it came out that he really believed that Jesus was the only God. And the Father and the Spirit were just different names for Jesus. Just different ways of describing who Jesus was at different times in history. But at the end of the day, he thought, well, Jesus is the only real one true God. So he didn't want the other two mentioned. Now, hopefully, as a result of this message, if you heard someone say that, you'd be able to identify that as another form of Sabellianism. It's just the same thing. Again, one person in just three different ways or three different modes of existence. And so as we talked, I said to this guy that in, in all honesty and clear conscience, I couldn't baptize him. Now you might think that's really harsh. It might sound like that's nitpicking. And what about our ethos here at Shore of unity and diversity? And we're a broad bunch and we want to be inclusive. Well, there were a couple of things at stake for me in that conversation. One is that the scriptures really are clear about how to do baptisms. Jesus said in Matthew 28, when you baptize people in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. I mean, it just couldn't be clearer. He has given us the formula of baptism. The other thing, though, is that by saying Jesus is the only God, or if he'd said the Father is the only God, or the Spirit is the only God, you are ultimately denying the doctrine of the Trinity. And the Trinity is an absolutely bedrock Christian doctrine. There are some things, many things, it's sure, that we want to, you know, we agree to disagree, and that this is okay, and that's okay. But the Trinity is fundamental to who God is. God is one and three. One being, three persons. That is, that's not, not even just something God does. This is who God is. And we want to be unified around that. Now, that doesn't mean that if you reject that idea, we're going to cast you out of the church. It doesn't mean that you're not welcome. It, it, it certainly didn't mean for that guy that he was not welcome in the church to participate in the life of our community. He absolutely was. But I could not in clear conscience baptize him because that's, that's going against something that is at the heart of the essence and the person and the being of God and at the heart of Orthodox Christian theology. So the doctrine of the Trinity is really important to us at Shaw. And Jesus in this passage, admittedly, he doesn't give us a full-blown doctrine of the Trinity. That comes later at the Council of Nicaea. But the raw ingredients are here for the recipe that comes later on. The raw ingredients are here, of the particularly the Father and the Son, and that relationship. They are the same, but they are also distinct. Jesus has a distinct identity from the Father. They act inseparably, but not identically. Okay, so that's heretic number one. We got him out of the way. Let's move on to heretic number two. Come on down. Here he is, Arius. He looks a bit sad, doesn't he? You probably would be too if you got called a heretic. So Arius lived around about the same time as Sibelius. In fact, he knew about Sibelius. He knew about Sibelius' views, and he strongly disagreed with Sibelius. But as so often happens in so many areas, Arius went to the other extreme. The pendulum swung too far. Now, Arius was really focused on the difference between Jesus the Son and God the Father. Sibelius emphasized their sameness. 
But Arius emphasized their difference and their distinctiveness. And so he zeroed in in verses like verse 30 of John 5. Have a look at that one, where Jesus says, By myself I can do nothing. I judge only as I hear, and my judgment is just. For I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Now, what Arius saw in that verse, quite rightly, is the idea of submission and subordination, that Jesus is submitting himself to God the Father. He's placing himself under the authority of the Father. And so Arius thought, well, if, if Jesus the Son is subservient to God the Father, then Jesus must be a lesser being. He must be a lesser kind of God. So Arius promoted the view that Jesus was a created being. He was still a God of sorts. He was still a deity, but not the same kind of deity as God the Father. He was a different kind of being. So there was a time when Jesus didn't exist. And then God the Father brought Jesus into being, created him, gave birth to him in a sense, and created him as a lesser deity of similar stuff, but not the same stuff as God the Father. And Jesus, therefore, was eternally, is eternally subordinate to God the Father, always serving the Father because he's a lesser being, he's an inferior being, and he serves the Father. Now, if, if that's what you believe, then again, congratulations, you're a heretic. But if that sounds familiar to you, it may be because that is the view of the Jehovah's Witnesses. And this is, this is a great question to ask. If, if the J-dubs come to your door, ask them, was Jesus the Son of God? And what they will say is, yes, yes, he was. And, and so a lot of Christians leave it there. That sounds good. That sounds, that sounds right. That sounds like what I believe. Jesus is the Son of God. But if you poke that view a little bit, what happens is, what, what will come out is they believe Jesus is the Son of God in the same way that Arius did, that he is a lesser being. He's the son in the same way that a child is the son or daughter of their parent, a created being that is given birth by another person, not fully and equally God. So that was rejected by the same council of Nicaea because it denied that Jesus was fully God. And when you read the, uh, the Nicene Creed, in view of the stuff that Arius was promoting, you can really see that at the Council of Nicaea, they really had Arius in their sights. And they were really going after that doctrine that Jesus was somehow a lesser being or subservient to God. And so if you just look at that slide, if you've got that extract again from the Nicene Creed there, it may come up in a minute. It talks about how Jesus is of similar, or the, the, the Creed talks about how Jesus is of the same substance as the Father. Begotten, not made. And they make a point of saying that. Jesus is begotten of the Father, but not made. Begotten, of course, is biblical language. John 3.16 says, the only begotten Son, Jesus is the begotten Son of God. But that's a very different thing to saying that Jesus was created by God, that there was a time when the Son didn't exist. To be begotten means that the Father is eternally giving life to the Spirit and the Son. That within the life of God, the Father is eternally the life source for the Son and the Spirit. But that's a very different thing to saying that the Father decided at a moment in time to create a Son, and that became Jesus. Jesus is the begotten of God, but he's not created by God. He is equal 
with the Father, of the same substance, homoousia, the same substance as the Father. And so within the life of God, there's no hierarchy. Within the relationship between Father, Son, and Spirit, from eternity past to eternity future, there's no hierarchy. There's no distinction of authority. There's no greater and lesser. There is an eternal community of equality and love. Jesus is fully God, and he's fully equal with the Father. That's what Arius denied. Now, some of you might be racing ahead a little bit and formulating a question here. Why does Jesus then say that he is submissive to the Father? If Jesus is fully God, if he's equal with God, if there's no hierarchy in the Trinity, why does Jesus say, I'm going to please the one who sent me? In fact, there's other statements like that. The, the, the strongest of them is in John 14, where Jesus says, the Father is greater than I am. So there, there's times when Jesus clearly seems to be placing the Father in a greater position of authority. The reason for that is that even while Jesus was equal with God the Father and is equal with God the Father, in his role as the world's redeemer, Jesus willingly, voluntarily made himself submissive to the will of the Father for the purpose of establishing God's kingdom on earth. Specifically in his incarnation, in his role as redeemer, Jesus willingly gave up the privileges of being equal with God. Philippians 2 describes this beautifully. Even though he was equal with God, even though he possessed that equality, he didn't consider it something to be used to his own advantage, but he made himself nothing. He willingly submitted himself to God the Father voluntarily in his role as establishing the kingdom of God. But in his essence, in his being, Jesus always, always, always remained equal with the Father. Even on the cross, even as he cries out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, in essence, is still equal with the Father, still fully God, even at that moment. Jesus constantly remains equal with the Father, even though in a functional sense, he surrenders his will to the Father for the purpose of establishing God's kingdom on earth. So there's kind of two great truths that emerge out of this passage. As we look at responding to these, these heretics, Sibelius and Arius, there's a couple of great truths out of what Jesus says here. And they're truths that sometimes feel like they want to pull apart, that don't exist that well together. But we've got to somehow hold these truths together if we're going to be faithful to who Jesus is. The first is that Jesus is one in substance and equality with the Father. That Jesus is equal with God, that he is fully God, one in substance and equality. But the second is that Jesus has a distinct identity as the Son, and he willingly became subordinate to the Father in his role as Redeemer. Jesus is fully God, and yet he has a distinct role, and, and gladly and willingly surrendered himself. Hebrews says, even though he was a son, he had to learn obedience. He learned obedience through what he suffered, willingly made himself subject to the will of the one that he called Father. Now, this may all just sound like academic, abstract theology that has no grounding in real life at all. But I want to suggest that this is a lot more relevant to us than we may think. A few years ago, uh, there was a couple in our church that came to me and wanted me to take their wedding uh, to officiate their ceremony. And we sat down and, uh, and talked things through. They were a lovely couple. They were both Christians. They both had a genuine Christian faith, uh, but they were living together. 
and their wedding was six months away. So we talked about various things, and you know, we kind of skirted around the issue and spent most of the night kind of dancing around the big elephant in the room, as you do. And then finally, I summoned the courage to confront it head on. And I said, you know, I want, I want to gently challenge you guys on something. I want to give you a challenge. I want to encourage you and challenge you for the next six months, from now until your wedding day, to physically separate. And for one of you to move out and find somewhere else to, to live. I know it's not going to be easy. I know that's hugely inconvenient for you. But I challenged them with the question, what is going to glorify God in your relationship now? Not just from your wedding day, but how can you glorify God in your relationship now? It was one of those awkward moments, and I just wondered whether he was going to reach across the table and punch me in the nose. But we just kind of just sat there with it for a minute, and they, they were very gracious, and they said they'd go away and think about it and so on. And they came back to me a couple of days later and said, we've talked about this, we've thought about it, and we absolutely want to do that. Uh, we know that this is right, we can see it, we want to do it. We want to put God in the center of our relationship from now. And they did. One of them moved out, found somewhere else to live. It was costly financially for them. It was really inconvenient for them. It was probably socially awkward, I imagine, telling certain people that they'd made that decision. But man, they glorified God with that decision. And it made the wedding day that much more special. And I said to them, you know, this is a story for your kids. This is a story to tell your grandkids at the appropriate time. You know, the way that you have honored God here is so special. Now, I would say that what they were doing was exactly what Jesus describes himself doing in verse 30, where he says, By myself I can do nothing. I seek not to please myself, but him who sent me. Not pleasing ourselves, but pleasing the one who sent Jesus. That's what they were doing. Rather than saying, what's the choice here that's going to be most pleasing to me? What's going to be easiest for me? What's going to be most convenient for me? They consciously decided, I'm going to please the one who sent Jesus. I'm going to surrender my will to the one who sent Jesus. That's exactly what Jesus does. If Jesus, who was fully equal with God, surrendered himself to the will of the Father, how much more should we be willing to do that in our own lives? If it was good enough for Jesus to learn obedience to the Father, it's good enough for us. See, we are invited into this amazing relationship with God. We're invited to share in this incredible relationship between Father and Son, to share in the love, to share in the grace, to share in the beauty of that relationship. And we do that in all kinds of ways, including the way we worship this morning. We share and we soak in that grace. But we are also called to share in Jesus' obedience to the Father. Those of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus, those who take the name Christian, we are called to share in the submission of Christ, willingly and gladly and voluntarily, taking upon ourselves that same attitude that says, I seek not to please myself, but I seek to please the one who sent Jesus. It's hard to do because it means having a good, honest look at our lives and saying, is there any way in which right now I'm living just to please myself? Is there a situation in front of me right now where I'm just seeking to please me? That, that doesn't necessarily mean, by the way, that, it feel, that, that what is pleasing to you feels good. It just means it's what comes most naturally to you. It's just your default setting. So you might be, for example, you may be harboring a grudge against somebody. Maybe someone's hurt you. Maybe someone's wounded you. Maybe a long time ago. Maybe just recently. And you're holding on to a deep grudge. And you've got this seething bitterness within you. This seething resentment this deep hatred towards that person, that doesn't feel good. That feels awful. It feels like anger and it feels like rage, but it's still what pleases you. 
because at a deep level, that pain pleases you. At a deep level, holding on to that hurt pleases you because it enables you to continue exacting vengeance to that person, even if only in your mind. At a deep level, you're comforted by that hurt and you want to keep that wound open. But it's a different thing accepting this call to say, I'm going to please the one who sent Jesus. I'm going to follow Jesus all the way into the Garden of Gethsemane and say, not my will, but yours be done. That's hard. That's costly. For you, that might mean letting go of this grudge, laying it down, and then doing that again tomorrow, and then again the next day, and starting a process of forgiveness, which might take a lifetime. It might mean entering into a process of reconciliation. It might mean pursuing peace. It might mean in a totally different area of your life, making a business decision that's not convenient, it's not personally fulfilling for you. It's not necessarily what you want to do. It's uncomfortable. But you know, deep down, it's what would please God. It's what would please the Father. Maybe for you it's a financial decision. It's costly and it's difficult and it's uncomfortable and it's just easier not to make it. But you know deep down that for you to say, I'm going to seek to please the one who sent Jesus, it's going to require this kind of financial decision rather than this. Only you can make that call. But this is what it means, not just to be believers in Jesus, but to be disciples, to be followers of Jesus, and to willingly take our will and hand it over to God. Surrender our will to the one who Jesus called Father. And we do that, please hear me on this, we do that out of grace. This is all of grace. Please, please don't hear me drifting into some kind of works-based living here or moral, just trying to be a better Christian, doing things for the sake of it. This is not guilt. This is not obligation. This is not fear. And it's certainly not shame. This is grace from beginning to end. Jody Owens put it so wonderfully yesterday in our leadership retreat. He said, grace not only pardons us, but it empowers us. It empowers us to make decisions that are sometimes really, really hard to make. But that's still a work of God's transforming grace in our lives. As we are more and more deeply anchored in the abundant, lavish grace of God, we're more empowered to conform to the pattern of Jesus' obedience, the pattern of his submission, the pattern of his surrender to the Father. So I just ask you simply and humbly this morning, is there an area of your life that God's putting his finger on, maybe even now, and it's uncomfortable and you're squirming over it, but there's something right now, there's a situation in front of you, and God's saying, I want you to say in this situation, I'm seeking to please the one who sent Jesus. Is there a situation where you are just still saying, I'm seeking to please me? I'm just going to live, act, relate, conduct myself in what, what way suits me best. And Jesus is saying, no, I want you to follow me. Hard as it is, I want you to follow me. I want you to be prepared to set aside your own convenience, to set aside your own interests and preferences and lay down your entitlements and your rights and I want you to take up your cross and follow me all the way to the cross, if necessary. It was a costly decision for Jesus. Ultimately cost him his life. This is what it means to follow Jesus. To revel and bask in Jesus' relationship with the Father. And then willingly share in Jesus' submission to the Father. If God's putting his finger on something in your life today, I just encourage you, don't turn away from that. Don't squash that voice. Don't put it to the back of your mind. It's incredibly easy to do that. Turn towards it and listen to what God is saying to you. Confront that challenge. Deal with it head on. Embrace it and have the courage and the faith to say with Jesus, I am going to seek hard as it is in response to all that Jesus has done for me. I will seek not to please myself in this decision, in this situation, but please the will of the one.
who sent Jesus. Can we say that? Let's pray. Jesus, you are the, the eternal Son of God. And yet you emptied yourself, humbled yourself, made yourself nothing. And your word says that we should have that same attitude in our dealings with one another. So Jesus, I just sense that you're putting your finger on some areas of people's lives this morning. And there's some situations and circumstances and decisions that are right in front of us. And it's hard, Jesus. It's so easy to talk about surrender, but in the gritty realities of life, it's brutally hard. And Jesus, I pray right now for anyone who's, who's wrestling with this call of yours to lay down their life and surrender to you and make a hard decision. And I pray right now that you'd bring fresh courage into their life, bring fresh faith into their life, bring fresh grace into their life. Remind them of your presence, Jesus, with them and strengthen them by your spirit to walk in faithfulness, to choose the narrow road. Jesus, we thank you that you've given us your grace and you've empowered us by your spirit. Give us now your courage to be faithful as your people and to follow you in your submission to the Father. In Christ's name, amen. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.